Welcome to All Autism Talk, connecting the autism community one podcast at a time. Our podcast offers friendly conversations with inspiring individuals in the autism community. All Autism Talk is brought to you by Autism Spectrum Therapies and the Learn AST Provider Network. Now, here is your host, Rob Hout. Hey, everybody. Welcome to All Autism Talk. I'm your host, Rob Haupt. I'm Executive Vice President of uh, Learn Behavioral, um, a network of ABA providers all across the country helping individuals with autism. Um, really excited for today's show. Um, you know, today we're going to be talking about a multidisciplinary uh treatment model and, and, and what are the best practices in multidisciplinary services. Um, you know, for the last 15 years, as you guys know, I've been in, in the field of ABA, and, and this is something that I, I've gotten to see a lot of different multidisciplinary models, and it's one of the things that I think is, is one of the hardest things to, to truly achieve at its core. Um, when, when done right, this type of approach is just amazing. It's, it's so collaborative. It, it's so cohesive. Um, but to do it right, you really have to put a lot of your ego, a lot of your, uh, you know, self-centeredness as a professional at the door and, and really be open to compromise and collaboration. And um, it, it's something that we aren't always so good at as, as professionals and as people. You know, we all come to we come to this to a home, to a school, to a classroom. We, we come to where we come go to um, with really specific visions of what treatment should look like, or or specific ideas as to what our discipline says we should do. That's as an OT, a BCBA, a speech pathologist, an MD, a psychologist. You know, everyone has their specific viewpoint. And to really do a great multidisciplinary program, it really requires a lot of compromise. It requires someone to always say, all right, I'm going to try it your way, or I'm going to give a little bit on mine. At the same time, it requires everyone to have a little bit of courage to say, I'm going to disagree with you. That way we can get to this compromise. And and that's actually what I, I found to be the hardest part is that openness to disagree with one another so you can get to that middle ground, get to that compromise to truly craft that collaborative, multidisciplinary um, program. Uh, so today I'm really excited. We're going to have Dr. Rue back with us um, to really talk about what are those best practices? How do you craft a good multidisciplinary program? Um, and, and what are some of the things that families should really be looking for um, as they start talking to different providers about the different multidisciplinary programs that they offer? So without further ado, let's, let's have Dr. Rue join us um, here on the show. Hannah, welcome to the show. It's great to have you back. Great to be here, Rob. So... Um, you know, this week we wanted to talk about kind of uh, a multidisciplinary approach to services. And, you know, I, I feel like everybody has a different, like, this is my primary service and, and these are my supporting services or that first service that they think of first. Um, but for everybody out there to kind of like put everyone on the same page, like what are, you know, kid with autism, they're newly diagnosed, like what are the different services, what are the different supports that need to go into a good multidisciplinary team or approach? 
Sure. I, I think that's a great place to start. I mean, depending on where you're going, if you if you have your young kid and you've just gotten done with a diagnostician, there could be a whole host of professionals that have been recommended that you contact and maybe where you got your diagnosis, they have a team all mm-hmm. ready to go. Typically, what we see is uh, parents are um, encouraged to reach out to a behavior analysts. Um, so those are the folks okay. who are going to provide you with home-based or clinic-based applied behavior analytic services. Uh, you have your speech-language pathologists. Uh, a lot of kids also requiring occupational therapy. Um, some kids requiring um, physical therapy. Uh, those are usually the main players. Um, in addition to, you know, if your child is school age, then you'll also be working with the school team. Uh, so it may be that you're juggling a, a number of different folks and some of them um, uh, replicating things from the from the school. For example, if you have a school age child, mm-hmm. you might have a speech language pathologist at the school, um, and then you might have your own, um, you know, private team or team based at a hospital or a clinic setting, so you'd be coordinating that uh, plan of care with your speech-language pathologist at the clinic. Um, so, again, depending on the age and, and where you're located or whatnot, um, you could have multiple folks playing similar roles. Uh, but those are usually the main players. A lot of folks are also, it's also recommended for newly diagnosed individuals oftentimes to uh, go further into uh, medical evaluation. So you might also be um, hooked up with a neurologist. Uh, You might be going in for some genetic testing, um, some EEG assessments, um, and and things of that nature. Usually those are the basics whenever you come out of a, a diagnostic appointment. You know, you kind of, you talked a little bit about kind of the way I think about it, like almost two sides. There's like a therapeutic side and there's a medical side. And I want to I want to kind of tackle that and talk a little bit about that in a bit. Um, but before we do, you know, go more to the team and, and how, you know, who's part of the team. I mean, I think one of the, I, I think one of the things I've heard a lot of families struggle with is not who, who are the different people so much of, you know, or, or how to find a note to you or how to find a speech. But as I, as I create my own, team of folks, like how often should I bring them together? How should I bring them together? Is it face-to-face? Is it all through me? Do we do meetings? Um, so, you know, do you have recommendations for families or, or thoughts on, on kind of how to structure that, how to get this team of people to work together if they're not all in one location, one center? Yeah, I think that can be a huge stressor for some families. And again, if you're in a region where maybe some of these professionals are um, spread out across our urban area, or if you're in a rural area and you might be going to a different, um, you know, couple of towns, um, it can be a real hardship on parents. And a lot of parents do report that, the, you know, they feel as if their kind of social workers are coordinating their care themselves. And in some cases, unfortunately, I think I think that's what needs to happen. Um, in other cases, uh, you might have, uh, you know, a lead someone who's been identified as the lead on the team who's going to coordinate um, with other folks. Uh, So, again, depending on who you're working with, um, it might look different. But what I always recommend that parents um, verify is that all of the professionals are willing to coordinate with others. So, um, you know, if you have have an OT working in one clinic and a speech-language pathologist in another and a home-based behavior analyst, you want to make sure – 
you know, I would even say prior to starting working with any of these individuals that they are willing to um, share their treatment plans, share the data they've collected, um, and also consider uh, adjusting plans and treatment targets uh, so that everyone can be fo focused on um, the same agenda. You know, so if it's really about expressive communication or, or getting a child to um, express themselves verbally or using um, a device of some sort, um, you want to make sure that everyone, if you will, is on the same page. Um, sometimes a parent can just go through, um, ensure that the folks are on board, willing to be team members, um, and the professionals can take it from there. Oftentimes setting up an email group, um, you know, setting up maybe monthly or quarterly meetings or check-ins, sometimes the meetings happen face-to-face, -face, um, like an IEP meeting or a progress report meeting. Sometimes all it requires is sharing data, you know, uh, via email or on a, a telephone, a conference call. As long as it's happening with some regularity and the child is making progress, so you can see progress in all of the different therapeutic areas, um, then I would say you you know, you have good communication, you have a good team. Um, it's when you're starting to see a lack of progress, someone's not sharing data or not sharing their procedures, um, uh, that's when a parent might really need to jump in and, and get the folks on the same page and request a, a sit-down meeting at one of the locations where all of the, the players come together. You know, you mentioned something that I think seems like a almost an obvious thing, but, but I know it's not, is, you know, asking families to, or are families asking providers, are you willing to collaborate? And, and I feel like a lot of folks just kind of assume, like, mm -hmm. issues could there be in collaborating? Um, obviously, that it's, the reality is it, it actually is not quite so simple. So, you know, for, for folks out there who maybe are newer to this or, or who haven't kind of experienced this, you know, what are some of the barriers? Like, what, why... What are barriers that may prevent or, or almost uh, have a provider maybe be discouraged from um, uh, collaborating in, in this model? Yeah, I mean, there's a whole host of reasons that, unfortunately, I've experienced in, you know, in my time as a clinician, um, you know, ranging from different philosophical perspectives. Um, so there are, unfortunately, some professionals who will take a perspective that doesn't align with another professional. Therefore, they, you know, just become opposed to interacting or sharing data or sharing treatment protocols or adjusting their treatments, you know, again, for the greater good. Um, that's probably the most common thing that I've seen. Um, for example, it's not unheard of if you have an individual uh, with autism, a child who has food selectivity. Uh, that's uh, something that a behavior analyst can oftentimes treat with appropriate training, um, but that's also something that you can see speech-language pathologists and occupational therapists treat. However, there's, um, you know, different perspectives on how to go about that treatment um, and what, uh, you know, evidence-based um, procedures might use. And so that's where you can see things starting to get sticky, where folks uh, will align themselves with the procedures that they used in the past, and then you can see that there's some discrepancy and some hesitation between um, collaborating and coordinating with each other. So that's probably one of the best examples I can have, uh, I have with, you know, professionals not wanting to collaborate. You know, mm -hmm. um, other things, uh, you know, can exist with um, 
uh, you know, just uh, some professionals who have uh, caseloads who are overwhelmed and they're just not great with communication. You know, and we see this in, in other industries as well. If you've ever tried to get, you know, some documentation from your physician, you know, sometimes it takes a, a few calls or a couple of weeks to get test results or some kind of communication. Um, OT, speech, behavior analyst, this, it's the same thing. So sometimes it's just um, difficult to open up those lines of communication um, if they, you know, aren't accustomed to working with the team members that you've identified. I, so I think those are, you know, just a couple of the common barriers, philosophical differences, um, and then opening up those lines of communication. So if you know, when you when you think about all of this, you, you have these different philosophies, and, and you know, I think your your feeding example is like just such a great example. The one for me, the one that comes to mind is like the communication devices that you talked about earlier mm-hmm. too. Is like, you know, different mm-hmm. people have different communication um, teaching methods, um, and and there's a pretty wide you know gamut of it. Um, if if a family out there is you know. They're, they're, they're looking. They're looking for services. A lot, a lot of providers out there are talking about multidisciplinary approach or a blended approach. Are there things mm-hmm. that, you know, swinging it almost to the other side where everyone, some places will talk a lot about, you know, we're all integrated together. It's really harmonious. Um, we don't mm-hmm. have uh, one philosophy. We're a perfect blend. Is Is there potential risk in almost um, everything being so blended that it almost could become diluted or other questions families should ask when they're looking at programs like that. Yeah, there's been some research. It, it, I think what you're getting at, too, might be uh, conceptualizes an eclectic approach, you know, whatever might work for this specific situation at exactly. this specific time, you know. And uh, I caution families, um, you know, with that as well because uh, it can be presented, you know, very well. What it, You know, it's so individualized. It's whatever your child needs from whatever philosophical standpoint we are, you know, then, then you get it. You get the whole thing. Um, and while that might be a attractive and sound really good for your young person on the spectrum, um, really what you need to be asking these folks is what the evidence base is. You know, and so I always say, you know, I'm a behavior analyst and a clinical psychologist, and we have a lot of um, good quality research to support the strategies that we use. But, you know, if we had good quality research, you know, supporting the use of, you know, I always say like underwater basket weaving, if there was a lot of data from different labs indicating that that was you know, the way to go, then I would support it. And that's where I want to see clinicians in agreement is, um, for example, if you are pursuing uh, communication, what does the latest, you know, behavioral and educational research say about the best way to teach communication? You know, maybe some folks are going to talk about the verbal behavior approach or different applied behavior analytic strategies, maybe speech and OT. We use some different terminology. But what I tell parents is, um, you know, go to some of those reliable resources I think that we've talked about in the past and we could certainly put in, you know, podcast notes where we're talking about, um, you know, some of the systematic reviews from the different researchers in the country. Go and double check with what your team is telling you. So, you you know, you sit there and you're saying all of this, you know, eclectic approach sounds great, but what can you tell me about the research supporting what you want to do with my child. And and that's where you want to drill down to each one of those team members um, to ensure that they understand the research 
um, that's being discussed and they're all in agreement with it. Um, and then again, ask for those resources and go and look at it, make sure that it is quality research that's, um, that's being used and not, you know, anecdotal information about parents saying how much they like one approach. You want to actually have some sort of science and data behind it. Um, and that's why I think, you know, parents familiarizing themselves with some of the reliable websites like the National Professional Development Center, the um, uh, ASAT uh, uh, Autism Science and Treatment Network, or whatever it is. Again, we can put the the notes in the in the podcast notes. But um, checking with some of those websites um, to verify that in fact those strategies are evidence based. I think that's that's really important, and that's that's the type of discussion that you want to have with clinicians, any clinician working with your child. Yeah, it almost kind of feels like to me it's like. Um, like in any other good relationship, like you almost need like a healthy to have a little bit of conflict. Like I always, I feel like mm-hmm. if we all agreed all the time, then why do we have all these different disciplines? If we're so harmonious, then then are we really multidisciplinary? Mm-hmm. And you know, it's like I, I always find like that struggle of like, well, what is that line professionally? And then how do you help someone, help a family, help a, a, a parent? figure out how to determine if that line is even being discussed, you know, in, in your organization. Mm-hmm. And it, it, I, I still haven't, you know, 15 years later, I still haven't really found the answer mm-hmm. to it. Mm-hmm. Well, and you know, what I always talk about too is to recognize, um, you know, the different clinicians in, you know, what their yeah. specialty is. So I'll always defer to a speech language pathologist when we're talking about, um, you know, assessing articulation or assessing, mm-hmm. you know, the, you know, the different speech sounds that we should target first, um, because that's their area of, uh, you know, a specialty for mm-hmm. an occupational therapist, you know, how, what's one of the best ways to determine handedness and, you know, pencil grip and those sorts of things. Mm-hmm. So I do tell parents, you know, recognize that each one of these professionals does have, um, specific training and you should be looking for their input around, you know, some of those very specific targets, um, that you're looking to teach your child. Um, but yeah, I mean, it can, it can get really complex and difficult for a parent to, to maneuver yeah. through that, especially when you're sitting with a, a team of professionals, um, you know, all providing you with, with some sort of, you know, information that, you know, you'll want to intake and be able to um, access. But parents aren't, you know, they don't have a handbook of, you know, speech language pathology, OT, BCBA, neurology or whatnot. Yeah. You know, one of the things I think I've, I've recently I've seen working more and more, and, and I'm curious how often you've seen this, is getting um, – getting the providers to overlap with one another. So not don't mm-hmm. tell me how often you meet, tell me how often the OT overlaps with the ABA and vice versa. Like how frequently, like if it's really multidisciplinary, there almost needs to be some sort of co-therapeutic therapy time, not just, hey, well, I'm going to sit in an office with you and talk through how are we going to do this or how do you do it. Like, again, thinking of um, uh, like a good consultation model, there's always a show. And so, like, let's mm-hmm. show you how to do it. Let me show you what I'm doing. Mm-hmm. Let's talk about what we saw versus here's an anecdote about what happened two weeks ago. And I, I feel like that's something I'm, I'm starting to see more people do. 
um, mm-hmm. in my, my samples, but, um, but it seems to be kind of like one of the bigger factors I'm noticing of, is this really a good collaboration? Mm-hmm. Right. You know, and back in the old days, uh, when we used to meet, you know, if you were, uh, if you have a home, if you had a home-based model, you know, back in the early 2000s, then like, once a month or once a quarter, um, yeah. it wouldn't be unusual for all of the folks to come in, sit in the living room, and then we'd actually bring the, you know, bring the child in and do some demonstration just like that. But, you know, now that we're mm-hmm. in, you know, the larger healthcare systems, there's a lot of constraints around, you yeah. know, billing and, and traveling and those sorts of things. So I think that's that could be one of the barriers. And certainly not everyone did that back in the day, yeah. but um, that's sure. something that I that I would see, and that was usually at the urging of the parents, you know, let's all come together. Yeah. And I think in some cases, in many cases, probably most cases, um, it really did help with the integrity of the, of oh, the yeah. program implementation, you know? So I, I completely agree yeah. with you. The more a parent can urge that type of overlap and kind of hands-on, you know, um, observation, I, I think that's the best case scenario for any client. I, th- I think that's why for me I'm starting to – I feel like I'm going more in the direction of particularly for our younger, you know, our younger learners, our, our long, younger clients, you know, almost like a 50-50 clinic and home approach. It, it just really seems to be like if you can get a multidisciplinary approach in the clinic for por- a portion of the day and then get some of those services wrapped around into your home – later on in the afternoon like that that really is starting to strike me as like the model that that's the way we should really do it to get the generalization to get the stimulus control to get that overlap and work around some of those barriers you just talked about that just just seems to be like maybe where we have to start moving more towards yeah i mean i'd love to see you know every child have access to you know a high quality clinic program that then you know fold over into the into the afternoon with the home based component or whatnot. But I think that's um you know, and a lot of families probably want that too. Yeah. Although I would say, you know, there's a number of families who would prefer one or the other for a variety of reasons. Um, sure. You know, and a lot of families, you know, don't have, you know, they have a problem with people coming into the home. Um sure. then we've also seen a lot of you know a lot of the clinic uh, could be a challenge themselves. Oh yeah. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, all of all of those issues. So, um, I think a lot of families right now are stuck with, you know, well, how do I how do I make the best of of what I have? Yeah. Um, yeah. You know, and it's it's I unfortunately it's still it's still in many cases about piecemealing this stuff together. But yeah, in an ideal world, clinic, home, um, uh, across a number of of different people to ensure that generalization. That's I, I would agree with you. That's the way to go. I, I just don't know if we can get there for everybody. Yeah, no, it's true. It's true. That's a good point. Um, you know, I want to I want to pivot a little bit. We, we've talked a lot about, you know, we've talked about occupational therapy. We've talked about the speech pathologists, the communication, and, and you know, as I said earlier, I kind of think of this as like the therapeutic side. The, the part of this that mm-hmm. seems to be getting more. Um, left out or forgotten is there's a medical side. Um, and, and I use medical even more broadly. It, it could be, um, you know, a, an expansion of behavioral health to be more than just ABA. Maybe it's some sort of mm-hmm. um, counseling service. And, and maybe it's for the, for the family to um, be to the, the individual. Um, there may be the need for more of a, a psychiatrist involved due to you know, maybe pharmaceuticals, maybe there needs to be more of an uh, MD presence in 
um, some other type of, you know, again, maybe the feeding example you brought up before, maybe there is a medical issue there and we need to be talking to a, to a gastroenterologist who, you know, all these different issues. It seems like the medical multidisciplinary approach has kind of, I don't know, I don't know if, I don't want to use the word lost, but I feel like I'm hearing about it less, which surprises me mm-hmm. now that we've kind of moved it. Autism therapy has kind of moved into more, you know, as we keep saying, the medical model. It's, it's interesting that I'm hearing less about the medical multidisciplinary approach than ever before. Um, so, yeah. you know, yeah, go ahead. I mean, you know, what are you, what are you seeing? Yeah, no, I, I would agree with that. And I, I think it's, um, in many cases, unfortunate. I find myself reminding clinicians, especially when, you know, we're, we're working with kids who have uh, difficulties with communication. You know, one of the first things that we do, especially if we see challenging behaviors, best practice is, you know, uh, ha- do we have any medical records indicating that this child has any physical ailments, any, you know, sensory issues in terms of, um, you know, hearing impairment, vision impairment, um, any of those sorts of things. Uh, and I do find it's it's pretty interesting because over the years uh, I found that we're, it seems with a number of cases we're communicating less with the primary care, we're communicating less with the prescribing physician um, who might be doing, you know, um, you know, uh, prescriptions for, you know, uh, Ritalin if you have a comorbid diagnosis of an ADHD or, you know, an SSRI or some of those other, um, you know, Risperdal, some of those other serious meds uh, that we see. But even if you have a kid, you know, who has acid reflux and, you know, they're on a, they're on a certain protocol for that, we should be in constant coordination with those medical professionals because that can have such an impact on skill acquisition and behavior management. Um, I've always advised clinicians uh, to, you know, bring, uh, ensure that the parents have uh, graphs and are equipped with reports and language needed to communicate to the medical professional, um, you know, what's going on, because uh, it seems like it's been harder and harder to include those medical professionals in some of our larger um, team meetings and team discussions. It just seems like it's um, become a more of a challenge for parents uh, to have that ongoing contact with their medical professionals. Um, and, it, and it might be just, you know, the the state of, you know, healthcare at this time, again, with, you know, folks being overwhelmed with the number of clients or patients that they're working with. Um, so, but that's one thing that I always recommend because especially kids who have the comorbid diagnosis and maybe they also have some serious medical conditions. We've worked with kids who have the, the G-tubes, kids with um, certain heart conditions, diabetes, um, uh, uh, different, you know, uh, tuber sclerosis and things of those nature, uh, diagnoses of, like that that require that uh, a physician have constant input and are constantly updated with what we're doing. And plus, we've also got to know when those medication changes happen um, because it's so critical to understand um, how it impacts our teaching and the child's learning. Well, you know, it's, it's amazing to me how many how many reports, you know, I mean, I read, God, I read so many different reports, um, you know, records from, from families across the country. And it's amazing how many of the reports I read, the evaluations I see, uh, there's no reference to even who is the child's PCP or 
does mm-hmm. the child have allergies or is the child on medication? Mm-hmm. Um, and, and it strikes me as sometimes it's, we, we you know, I think this applies to probably a lot of different disciplines, but specifically as behavior analysts, we're so focused on the ABA piece, we sometimes lose sight of the um, questions we should be asking that are not about ABA, but to emphasize or to start the process you said of, let's get involved in this. You know, there's acid reflux, let's get involved in that. Um, there is comorbidity. Mm-hmm. Well, let's understand that diagnosis. It It does feel sometimes that we've become so... Um, verbal behavior or or ABA strategy and autism focused and and have lost sight sometimes of those other components and um, and we've got some like almost some catching up to do. Yeah, I would agree. That's that's been one of my issues. You know, I also teach in one of the you know master's mm-hmm. level ABA programs in, in the in the United States and. You know, sometimes I think our focus is too narrow if we're supposed to be encouraging clinicians to, uh, you know, take into account their environment and everything that could have an impact on behavior. And, you know, certainly these medical issues and these other, you know, psychological diagnoses that you could see mental health issues are going to have that impact. And I always appreciate, you know, behavior analysts, you know, who are aligning themselves appropriately with their ethical guidelines to say, well, you know, that's not within my scope of practice. Um, and certainly we have to, you know, recognize where our scope is, but that's not to say that we can't inform ourselves about what's going on in the larger environment of our child and, you know, all of those different factors that might be having an impact. So I usually try to talk to, you know, graduate students and clinicians who are out in the field about how important it is not to, you know, have any sort of decision-making about, you know, what's going on medically or whatnot, but simply understanding, like you said, and educating yourself about, you know, maybe maybe you aren't familiar with tubular sclerosis and um, you should, you know, go ahead and Google it. Take a look at some reliable yeah. websites and look at the CDC and inform yourself about what that means because that's going to have a huge impact on how your client responds to your program and, and the type of program that you design. Um, you know, on the, you know, within that medical side, you know, one of the things I've, I've seen a lot of clinicians struggle with is, you know, ABA has been going very well. This child has made a lot of progress. Um, maybe there hasn't been historically this like big integrated multidisciplinary team, but something changes. And typically, it's it's that child gets older. It's that child is mm-hmm. you know the child had ABA, but now the child's twelve. Um, puberty is starting mm-hmm. to kick in, or maybe there is a big transition. Um, and in knowing when to maybe look into other behavioral health. Um, types of treatments. And is there a point, do you ever have a sense of um, when there's, you know, is there, there's a, is there an age, is there a profile, is there something to make, to make up a family or a clinician and say, hey, look, we've been doing the ABA thing, it's been going great, but now we need to pivot. Now let's look into um, evaluating, is there something different um, that should be at play, maybe a more traditional um, psychology type of appointment, uh, counseling type of appointment, um, you know, cognitive behavior therapy, something along those lines, or is it truly still case-by-case data-driven? You know, I think, like you said, you see that 
you know, needs increasing into different areas as the child gets older. Um, you know, certainly maturation impacts kids differently. You know, neurotypical kids or whatnot, we see, you know, changes. And there's a lot of research to show that, you know, um, challenging behaviors can, you know, change. Topographies can change as the, as the child develops. In um, things like seizure disorders, um, it's not unusual to see seizure disorders develop with the onset of puberty, especially in males with a diagnosis of autism. Um, so I think it's important for um, a lot of times what, what I hear is that parents start to recognize that something's different, that maybe, you know, their uh, behavior analytic services aren't, you know, catching everything that they were hoping for. Maybe there's something that's not being addressed appropriately. You know, they're not making progress um, like they used to when they were younger. You know, we see our younger kids who are, you know, working on identifying different things and they're working on using language. Um, and that skill acquisition can be pretty rapid and pretty incredible. And then when you get to, you know, these preteens or adolescents, um, you know, that skill acquisition might change. It looks different. The skills become more complex. Um, and I do tell parents and clinicians alike, um, you know, again, monitor progress. So if you have a behavior analytic program in place, you know, for this individual, monitor progress. If they are continuing to make progress with the various goals that you're introducing, that's great. But if you start to see some things that are becoming more challenging to capture, you know, maybe, like you said, you see a child who's developing what some professionals might call, um, uh, you know, behaviors that might be associated with anxiety. Um, you know, maybe some phobias develop. Maybe there's um, some social anxieties or things of that nature. And the behavior analyst, um, you know, might have some difficulty conceptualizing that or, you know, targeting that. Um, you talk with the parents and, you know, ask them about, you know, if they've ever had, you know, any mental health assessments. Um, and maybe, you know, you see uh, symptoms that are more aligned with ADHD. You know, maybe you're starting to see more hyperactivity as the, you know, the youngster gets older. And, um, you know, that's when you might advise the parent, you know, to check in with their medical professional. Um, so, again, uh, parents are really great because they, you know, they know their kids. They're the expert on their kids. And, um, you know, they start to get the feeling, hmm, something's, something's not right. You know, I think I might need a little bit more. Um, usually, that's a good thing. And, and you talk with your clinician, your behavior analyst about that. And it's probably that you just need to reach out to some different professional social workers, psychologists, or, or medical professionals. And if you're a behavior analyst and you're starting to see things that, again, are out of your scope, you recognize maybe from some of your um, you know, clinical experience or some of your training that there might be another need that's presenting itself. Um, it is your ethical responsibility to, you know, provide that information to the parents and let them know what you see so that they can access uh, the, the appropriate services. In some cases, you know, we have a lot of kids who um, are impaired um, and, you know, they we need other supports like the vocational trainers that, you know, get our individuals out in the community. Um, some families simply need respite care uh, because, you know, every family, every parent needs a break at some point. Um, and sometimes it's just, um, you know, encouraging families to make use of the different, um, the different services that are out there. Um, you know, we're, we're coming up to the end of the show now. Um, just, you know, final thought from you. I mean, is there any kind of final takeaway, any final recommendation, um, tip for families out there who are, you know, saying, I'm, I'm in a multidisciplinary team. What's the, 
most important thing I should keep in mind, or I'm about to look at a multidisciplinary team, what's the most important thing I should keep in mind, um, you know, in terms of uh, identifying the right team to go with? Right. That's when I go back to, um, you know, thinking about the framework of evidence-based practice. You want to make sure that you're working with clinicians who take into account, you know, your values and preferences. You want to make sure they can talk about the um, scientific work that supports what they're doing. Um, and again, you want to make sure that there's a collaboration. Um, you know, and if you have those things and if these people can point you to reliable resources and as your child gets going with these professionals, your child is making progress and, you know, and you see behavior change in the right direction, um, then you should, you should feel pretty confident. Um, again, if you have folks that are hesitant to collaborate, um, if they can't tell you about the science supporting what they're doing, um, you know, or they're not taking into account what you know, what you feel is important, um, you know, then that's probably when I would seek uh, some different professionals in whatever area they might be trying to provide services. Um, so it is about keeping that evidence-based framework in mind um, and just, you know, checking with the professionals you're working with. Again, it's not unlike, you know, talking to your primary care physician or your dentist or anyone um, you know, you want to talk about your, the plan of care and how comfortable you feel with them and why they want to do what they do, um, which should be supported, again, by science and evidence. So um, if you can start using that language and, you know, feeling comfortable talking to professionals about that, you should feel empowered to make some informed decisions. And, and that's how I would recommend parents go about doing that. Hannah, thank you so much for being here. It was great to have you again. Um, as always, just awesome talking to you. Um, hope you have a, have a great summer, and we'll talk to you in a few weeks. Okay, great. Thanks a lot, Rob. So that's our show for today, everybody. Um, thanks so much for being here. Um, you know, two shows I, I, I want to point out from our from our archives that I think are really great complementary shows to this. Um, about a year ago, we were joined by Gail Singer Chang, and Gail is uh, part of Western University of Sciences. And when she was on the show, we were talking a lot about collaboration. Um, and, and with Gail, we were talking more about uh, a, a medical collaboration, um, something that Hannah and I touched a little bit upon. Um, but it was a really great look at how can the medical and the therapeutic worlds kind of really collaborate together, um, and not just for the, the younger ages, but really looking at a older population, looking at kind of adult transition and, and that type of collaboration, something that uh, I think sometimes gets lost in the shuffle when we talk about multidisciplinary. Sometimes we, we focus a little too much on the, the early ages of uh, multidisciplinary programs, and, and this show kind of focused a little bit more on those older ages as well. Uh, another just great show, and, and this one's dating me a bit, but uh, about, I'd say about three, four years ago, we were joined by uh, two of the uh, directors at the uh, Kennedy Krieger Institute's uh, Multidisciplinary Feeding Clinic. Um, and, and this program, for those of you who uh, are new to it, is truly one of the, the best programs in the world when it comes to um, treating um, individuals with food selectivity or who are having feeding problems. Um, it is just kind of a, a model program that, that folks all across the world are, are looking to from both from a research point of view as well as from a, a treatment point of view. Um, and they talk a lot about um, 
the difficulties and the challenges of different disciplines coming together who maybe aren't uh, familiar with one another's disciplines or maybe aren't, weren't initially in agreement with each other's disciplines um, to treat some pretty severe um, feeding problems. So uh, great shows to keep this conversation going to kind of look at this this multidisciplinary model um, from a few different lenses. Um, hope you guys have a, have a great week. Uh, look forward to talking to you again soon. Take care, everybody. We hope you have enjoyed today's episode of All Autism Talk. This podcast is brought to you by the Learn AST Provider Network. You can listen to previous episodes at allautismtalk.com on iTunes podcast all autism talk connecting the autism community one podcast at a time